Hi, everyone. It's Mike Morse. Thanks for tuning in and listening to another episode of Open Mic. Today, we have former Representative Brian Banks, also an attorney, on the show today. And for his intro, I decided he just wrote a book, which I actually read yesterday. And the intro was from a judge that I knew and respected, Judge Denise Langford Morris. I'm going to read what she has to say about Brian Banks, and then we're going to bring him onto the show. She said, as a native Detroiter, world traveler, and seasoned jurist, I have met many people in my lifetime. While serving the public, I have learned to recognize those with intellect, extremely hard work ethics, true Christian values, determination, and more importantly, the gift to serve others amongst mankind. These are the very qualities I felt exude from Brian Banks when I first met him many years ago. My dream is that one day he will appear in the people's court again, serving others. He is deserving of another chance to fulfill my dream and his. I thought that was amazing. Let's bring on former state representative, Brian Banks. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one-on-one my whole career. What you're going to hear. You got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're gonna hear on my podcast, open mic find it where you find your podcasts hi brian well hi mike how are you i'm fantastic thank you for being on open mic well thank you for having me uh it's a pleasure i'm glad to see you again you and i met many years ago uh, when you were a state representative here in michigan you were probably the best fighter against no fault reform that i've met to this day um, and you were tenacious and smart and uh, cared, and I appreciated it. And um, that was a, a great way to get to know you. So um, that's what I remember. And unfortunately, you're no longer state rep, and, and bad bad stuff happened when you went away. We we our our, our governor instituted some terrible reform in the no fault arena for no for no reason. What do you think about what do you think about what uh, this isn't even a question I was going to ask you, but what do you think about the no fault changes that are going into effect right now? Well, Mike, I think it's unfortunate that um, we really didn't have a true leader to rise up uh, to speak truth to power regarding the no fault issue. Uh, I became passionate about the no fault issue for a number of reasons. Uh, my uncle, uh, who resided in New Jersey at the time, had experienced a catastrophic injury. And um, New Jersey was a at fault state. And as a result, my uncle did not receive the quality of care that he deserved and needed to sustain a, a certain quality of life. And so that was a personal reason for me to take on the no fault fight. But not only that, I worked at AAA. Uh, my very first job was at AAA Michigan. Uh, and I learned the ins and outs. And then in law school, uh, where I graduated, and I do have a law degree. I'm not a practicing attorney, but I do have a law degree. Uh, in law school, I took no fault law, uh, and one of my professors was one of the best in the state, attorney George Sinus. And so I had an interest there. And so when I went to the legislature, I went to fight for those individuals who lived in urban and rural areas who paid high cost uh, car insurance, but not only high cost car insurance, but were being uh, discriminated against, legalized discrimination, because they were being charged for where they lived. Insurance companies were allowed to use non-driving factors, such as your zip code, your credit score, your uh, gender, your education status, uh, your occupation to determine what your credit, uh, what your uh, insurance rates would be. 
And so uh, it was very unfortunate that our governor signed this uh, legislation into law that gave promises of lower car insurance. And uh, as I've seen personally, and I've heard from countless others, uh, none of us are saving. And it's yet the same individuals who are paying the high cost of insurance. And it's like the insurance companies are allowed to discriminate uh, with no type of um, cost containment, no type, no type of uh, accountability uh, like in other states. And so it's unfortunate, but I do believe that um, there's some opportunity to do some reforms to correct this wrong. Uh, it was just unfortunate the governor did this uh, at the time that she did, especially without allowing all the stakeholders to the to come to the table to have a discussion. Why do you think she? Why do you think she gave a gift to the Republicans and to the insurance companies without caring about her constituents in Michigan? Why do you think she did it? Would you do you have any insight as to why she made such a error in judgment? Well, I, I would say, you know, uh, I think she was trying to fill a campaign promise. Uh, I think it was low hanging fruit for her. Um, but I don't believe that the issue was um, studied in its entirety. Uh, I've had a number of conversations with the governor before the legislation was signed and since the legislation was signed regarding this. And I don't believe that um, the governor nor her uh, staffers really uh, invested the time to really learn and understand the issue in its totality, uh, there are layers to this insurance issue. It's not just insurance rates, but we have those who are grandfathered in the system. We have those who've paid into no-fault systems and they are expecting to receive a certain quality of care. And so we have issues that this legislation really didn't address. You know, um, But there are a number of things that can be done that doesn't require a legislative fix. You know, um, there are some issues with fraud on both sides of the spectrum from not only the insurance companies, but the insured. Uh, there are a number of uh, things that we can do to uh, to correct this wrong. But I, I believe uh, the governor was trying to act uh, in the interest of fulfilling a campaign promise, but it wasn't right. And it yeah. hasn't. I haven't met one person who has saved any money on all insurance. And I'm looking, I'm talking to my clients. I haven't met one person. The bill was a farce. The bill was a scam. The bill was a, I have no idea why that she wanted the insurance companies to make billions more dollars. Um, right. Governor, she, like or hate her, she, this was a terrible, terrible th thing she did to Michiganders. And I'm going to hold her accountable. Um, and I'm going to keep having people on the show like you. And we're going to have people on to talk about that their rates aren't going up. Their benefits went down. The fee schedules are, are coming into effect, which are going to be a disaster for people to get the right medical care. It's just, it, it's, it's, it's horrific. I'll say this, you know, I serve with the governor. Uh, I consider the governor uh, uh, a friend. Um, we don't agree on this issue. Uh, she's aware of that, but you know, I, I believe that uh, she will right her wrong eventually. Uh, okay. we, I, I hope you're right. I'll hold you to that. And, and you know, I've, I've taken some of my clients uh, to a meeting with her and we've had some discussions on a path to try to right some of these wrongs. And so um, anyone taking a new position, you have a lot thrown at you, especially you're governing the whole state and you're trying to find solutions to problems and you're not always gonna get it correct. Now, I don't make excuses for her because there were uh, tons of information and resources uh, and people that she could have pulled on to gather uh, information from all sides. And I just don't believe that the adequate time 
and, and study was done to understand this issue so we could address it and get it right the first time. So my blood's boiling. I didn't know we were going to talk about this. Let's move on, Brian, to talk about more exciting things. I want to talk about you. I want to talk about your book. You know, you have a fascinating story and, and you're very open about your story. The first day we met, we had lunch. And I remember you telling me, you know, the story about your your former, you know, criminal activity that you that you unfortunately got messed up in and uh, the fact that you weren't able to get uh, licensed in the state with your with your you know your law degree, uh, what happened to you um, as as a as a, during your third term? I mean, you were very uh, open and honest and transparent, and you took responsibility. And I I liked that about you from the day I met you. I think you're a highly intelligent, great dresser, good man. Um, and so let's, so let's, let's dig into this. I mean, for people who don't know, you grew up in Detroit, you were in Denby, Denby high school, you were a straight A student and you dropped out your senior year. Correct. Give us a, give us a brief version of what, what happened there and why that happened. So at the time, um, a little bit uh, about me to lay a foundation. Uh, I'm born and raised on the East side of Detroit. I was raised by a single mother, a strong black woman. I did not know my father at the time. Uh, my grandfather was the only father figure in my life. And so my grandfather and my mother uh, provided a, a good quality of life for me, but that wasn't just uh, my entire family. Uh, I lived with a blended family. And so as you'll see in my book, I talk about uh, a blended family. I had a step-grandmother who unfortunately uh, was an alcoholic. I had a step-grandmother who unfortunately uh, took issue with the relationship that my grandfather had with my mother and I, the closeness. And so um, every day at, at my house, uh, there was uh, arguments. Every day at my house, there was fighting. Uh, and, and so by the time I made it to the, the 12th, 11th grade, in, exiting the 11th grade, I was at a very dark spot in my life. Uh, I was dealing with a lot uh, more than the average 16, 17 year old should have to deal with. Uh, and so I began to skip school. I began to hang out with the wrong people. Uh, and unfortunately the teachers, uh, until about three or four weeks uh, of me skipping. And so uh, I finally shared it with my mom and my grandfather that I had been skipping and I didn't want to go back. So they took me out of Denby High School and they put me into Lutheran East. Uh, and that wasn't any better. Uh, that was just where all the trouble kids from Denby went uh, and those uh, families who could afford to pay uh, to go to a private school. And so I skipped there as well uh, while my grandfather was paying the tuition every month. And I would go to Eastland Mall. And so, um, my grandfather told me, hey, you can't stay here if you're not going to go to school. You have to get a job or you have to go to school. And so I ventured out and got a job and I started making good money. But I also started hanging out with the wrong people. And as a result, hanging out with the wrong people, we ended up uh, using credit cards that wasn't ours. We ended up using credit cards that we didn't have permission to obtain. And we would go on shopping sprees and we would use those cards and then pay the cards off with checks that were no good. And it went from shopping at Eastland to Northland, from Northland to Somerset Mall. And it went from little small items to high ticket items. And as a result, um, I began to rack up charges uh, uh, in Oakland County and Wayne County. And as a result, uh, I began- Criminal charges or you're talking about purchases right now? Criminal charges. Right, you started- charges. And at that point, through the justice system, I, I started, through the criminal justice system, I started. And, you know, I had a few uh, issues uh, in district courts and they were resolved. Uh, but it wasn't until 1999 
when I went before Judge Denise Langford Morris. This tall, beautiful African-American woman at the time was the only African-American judge in Oakland County. Uh, I had a friend who had gone before her and they were saying, well, we hope you get this black judge. You know, she's at least fair. Uh, she will at least uh, tell you the truth and she's going to talk to you like a mother and an aunt, but she's also going to execute judgment. And she's also going to, you know, sentence you. But she'll do it in a manner that will hopefully resonate with you. And so uh, as I went through the criminal justice system, uh, every time the credit card was swiped, that was a charge. And so there were 17 charges that I was looking at uh, of using a credit card that wasn't mine. And so this judge uh, didn't know me, but she saw what was going on. And so um, I had a retained attorney and um, the judge kept pressing upon my attorney and the prosecutor to work a deal out. And not having any experience with the criminal justice system, as time went on, I got aggravated because here it is. I've now been arrested. I'm now going through the court proceedings. I had a very good job at the time at EDS, which was a part of General Motors at the time. And here it is. Um, my grandfather bonded me out of Oakland County Jail. My bond was like $60,000. Uh, and my grandfather came and got me the next day. And we retained an attorney. But I'm going through the process. And now I've lost my job. And it seems that I show up for court and it's adjourned for two weeks. It's adjourned for three weeks. And having not experienced this, I'm getting frustrated because now I got to pay for gas to come from the east side of Detroit to Pontiac. Uh, now I'm on my own. My grandfather's like, there's no more I'm going to do. I've gotten you an attorney. I bonded you out. You know, um, I have to make some decisions. Uh, I was losing hope. I was losing, you know, uh, all my aspirations and dreams. Uh, I lost my apartment. I lost my job. And so, um, Little did I know, the judge was being a very effective, thorough jurist uh, and, and, and reading the facts of the case and determining what was going to be allowed to stay and what was going to be kicked out. And so uh, after a long process, uh, there were a ton of charges that were dismissed because I had not done those things. And so uh, at the end of the day, I was sentenced to a year probation and the first six months on a tether. And so the tether was in lieu of jail and um, I got the tether on and I was applying for jobs and applying for jobs, trying to do right. Because I, at this time I have court costs and restitution and I didn't want to be violated. And so um, I researched how to remove a tether and, you know, uh, you know, uh, funny as it may sound while I was researching it, you know, there was an article that said, take a screwdriver and a hammer and, and, and get the tether off. I'm like, no, that's not what I was referring to. But I wrote a motion to get the tether removed without an attorney because I couldn't afford an attorney anymore. And it was at that point that the judge spoke to me openly. And she said some things to me that I didn't even know still existed in me. She spoke greatness in me. She said, do you realize you've just written a motion on your own? You filed it. You've come here on motion day. And I was terrified when I opened the door on her motion call day, there were white men with suits on in the courtroom. And here it is, I'm a black boy that's dropped out of high school, no attorney, and I'm gonna ask for my tether to be removed because it's a motion I filed. And I argued against the prosecutor. And that day, my motion was removed. But that next day, I went and got my GED. Two days later, 
I went and enrolled at Wayne State University. The judge said to me, get in school, stay in school. You need to be in someone's law school. It was always a dream of mine to become an attorney and one day to sit on the bench as an officer of the court. But I thought because of my poor choices and my poor decisions that my life was truly over for me. I thought, you know what? I'll never be able to obtain any of my dreams and my goals and my aspirations. But luckily and thankfully, and thanks be to God, who always causes us to triumph, even in our darkest hour, I went and got my bachelor's degree from Wayne State in three and a half years. I got my master's degree. I started substitute teaching. I then taught third grade at a charter school for a while. And then I applied to law school. And I got denied a couple of times. And luckily, uh, I went to Michigan State University for a tour. And I went on a tour with the old elementary school classmate of mine. And during that law school tour, we met one of the law school deans who was the only African-American dean and the diversity officer. And after our tour, they took us into a, their office and just had some conversations and we just shared our experiences. And they thought that I would be a good fit in Michigan State University's law school, their conditional program. And that was a program where you had to apply and if admitted, you had to go stay on campus for six weeks and you had to take two main courses. We took civil procedure and we took property and we took a research and writing class. And at the completion of that six weeks, if you passed the classes then, you would be offered a full-time seat uh, in the fall class. And I was offered a seat in that fall class. Which, you know, I'm gonna stop you for a second. I mean, it's, it's yeah. an amazing, you know, it's an amazing story, Brian. It's an amazing story um, of triumph and that you, 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 that this judge helped you and you listened to the signs and um, you got your GED. And what year was it that you entered law school? 2007. And you finished it in three years? Finished it in 2010, yes. The only African-American male in my graduating class. Of wow, wow. Yes. And, and, and uh, you took the bar? No, I took the bar, but I did not uh, get a character fitness clearance. And then I hold was- on, Hold on, I didn't ask that. You, you took the bar though. Did they let you take the bar exam? Yes. And did you pass the bar exam? No. Okay. Is that because of the character and fitness part? I missed the bar exam by two points. Got and it. then I needed a character and fitness clearance. Did you ever take it again? Uh, I can take it again only once I get a character and fitness clearance. Got it. Now, uh, for those people who don't know, Michigan lawyers, and this is not the same in every state, um, have to go through a process called character and fitness. And every lawyer has to be vetted to make sure that their character and fitness is up to the standards that the Michigan rules and responsibilities have in place. And not everybody makes it through. And what Brian is saying is he applied, he went through this committee, but because of the uh, crimes that he uh, committed and pled guilty to, they would not let him be a licensed attorney in the state, whether or not he passed the exam or not. Is that basically true, Brian? That's basically true. But I, I will say this in fairness. Uh, when I look back 10 years ago, I wasn't ready. When I went before the Character and Fitness Committee, um, I had just graduated from law school. I had a grandfather who uh, I had become his caregiver and his guardian and conservator uh, who was dying. And I had a lot going on. But not only that, I wasn't ready maturity wise. Um, when I when I went back and I read the report from the Character and Fitness Committee, uh, it was a hard pill to swallow to read, you know, that I would accept responsibility back then. 
but I would also um, minimize my involvement or minimize my engagement. Um, but also there were some other factors, which I think people who don't understand the character and fitness process, they look at everything from the time you're 18, you have to list every address you've lived at from 18 to your current age, every employment uh, employer you've had from that time, any lawsuit you've had, whether it was civil, criminally, whether you sued someone, whether they've sued you, whether there was some criminal charges, uh, any, any, if you sat on any boards, they want to know everything about you. And so one thing I have to say, and I'm not, thanks to God, I'm not here anymore, but when you've experienced poverty, poverty is a domino effect. And couple that and add on to pop being living in poverty with having felony convictions where it's hard to obtain gainful employment. And so for me, you know, it was one thing to obtain a job, but then it was also another thing to stay current on my bills. And so uh, here it is. I'm ha I have felonies. Here it is. Uh, I I've lived in poverty. It wasn't that you live above your means, but you, you, you try to make ends meet. And so I had to explain everything. I had to explain that I had to put myself aside to care for a grandfather who was the only father that I knew. And so I really wasn't ready. And when I look at where I was 10 years to where I am now, I'm a totally different person, maturity wise, uh, professional wise, uh, you know, uh, credit wise. Uh, and, and so um, I'm going to give it another shot. Tell and, me, and that, that's my next question. When, when are you giving it another shot? Uh, I, I started the process recently, but I'm going to um, hold off for a minute and really um, put my best foot forward after getting some counsel from some individuals who've set on character and fitness. Uh, I retained an attorney. The attorney I retained uh, went to prison for several armed robberies. And he got out of prison after robbing several banks. And got his license back? He, got, he never had a license prior, but he went a rigorous process and had some DUIs after that. But he eventually got through. If he could uh, do it, Brian. Absolutely. You can do it. Absolutely. And so you get through uh, the process, they, they pass you, and then you got to take the bar exam again? Correct. Which won't be fun. No, but I'll, I'll pass and then I'll come work for Mike Morris. Hey, we'll, <laughs> we'll just win, win, win. Brian, listen, I would love to support you, man. I think you got a, a great story. And I think, um, um, I, you know, I, if I can do anything to help you get through this process, will you let me know? I sure will. And I appreciate that. I genuinely appreciate that. And those who have um, supported me throughout the years, including yeah, no, for you've always been uh, a man of your word and, and you've always uh, did what you said you were going to do. And I have no doubt in my mind that you get through this. So if you need, if you need help, let me know. I want to talk about your time in the Michigan state legislature. Um, briefly tell us why you decided um, to run for Congress here in Michigan. So uh, I was currently living in Harper Woods, Michigan, and uh, my district that I lived in back at, in, in 2011, 2012, uh, was a very diverse district. It had all five girls points, Harper Woods and the east side of Detroit, a portion of the east side. But unfortunately, um, Detroit and those uh, people of color, we really didn't have representation. And so I had uh, reached out to my elected official at the time and really didn't get the answer or response that I should have received. And so as a result of that, I began having conversations with individuals about possibly running for state representative. Little did I know that the following year, the district seat was going to be redrawn. And as a result, 
there was no incumbent in the seat. So it was an open seat. And so I remember being on the phone with a very good friend of mine, uh, retired Wayne County Judge Vonda Evans. And I shared to, with her that I was thinking about running for state representative. And she couldn't believe me. She said, you're not going to do it. I said, oh, yeah, I'm really considering it. I said, over the years, I've watched you campaign. I've helped you campaign. I've helped others campaign. I really think I could um, put together a campaign team and be successful. I think I could put forth a message. And so we discussed, well, you know, are you going to share your past? Absolutely. Uh, I believe there are a number of people who are disenfranchised and people who've gone through the system. And if it's not them, they know someone. And so I believe that, you know, with my experience, professional experience of having been a teacher, and by that time I was an adjunct professor, uh, as well as uh, having a bachelor's or master's in the law degree, that I could really be uh, a valuable asset in the state legislature. And so I decided to run in 2012. I ran on a shoestring budget. I didn't have a huge team. It was my mother. Uh, my brother and a few friends on the weekend, but we knocked doors every day. I raised a little under $30,000, but we knocked doors five and six hours a day. Uh, I couldn't even afford a mail house in the beginning. So my mother and some uh, female family friends and uh, volunteers would get together and they would put the labels on all my mailings and, and we would take them to bulk mail and mail them that way. But after all that hard work, I was successful in, in winning my first election in 2012 by 96 votes. And it was a field of five. And out of the five, three of the five had already run before. And one of them was a previous elected official. And I ran in 2012. I won. And I was sworn in uh, in January of 2013, despite some people saying, oh, he's not going to be seated because of his felonies. Well, that had already been tested by a number of other former uh, legislators who had felonies uh, when they arrived in the state legislature. And so um, I was seated and I began to serve. And my first term in office, I never missed a day at work. I never missed a vote. I had 100% voting record. I had 100% attendance because I believe that it was important that my constituents' voice was there at the Capitol every day that a vote was taken up. And so as a result, uh, I began doing a lot of community work. Uh, the first event I had was for ex-offenders, help them get their records expunged. I had health and community days, uh, health fairs, uh, back to school fairs. Uh, every year we adopted 50 to 60 families for Christmas. Uh, and, and so we just were very strong in the community. 2014 came, I ran for re-election. I was told you're gonna be a one-time legislator. You know, uh, this young lady's moving back from DC. She's gonna outraise you, she's gonna out-campaign you. And I said, look, everyone has a right to run. It's a part of the democratic process, but I have a right to fight and retain my seat and my record will speak for itself. And in 2014, I was reelected and I got more votes than I got in 2012. But not only that, I was then elected by my colleagues as the chairman of the Detroit caucus. Let's talk about that. That's a very, very powerful democratic caucus. Um, what was that like after... The, the the 10 years before and all that you went through walking in as the chairman of the of a very powerful black caucus what was that like take me through that so um when you look at the state house uh in the state house we had 10 seats that represented the detroit uh the detroit area and then the senate we had five seats that represented the, the, the city of detroit and so uh we had the biggest voting block in the state house 10 votes so and we took a caucus position. It could make you or break you. You know, it could it could pass a bill or cause a bill to fail. 
But it was more important for me to get all 15 members of our caucus unified around common issues that affected and plagued the city of Detroit for years. And one of them was the uh, insurance issue. Another was the fate of Detroit public schools and its uh, deficit that it was facing at the time, almost $900 million deficit. And so it was important that my colleagues and I learned and knew the issues, but it was also important that we stood up for the least of the, that we stood up for every citizen in the city of Detroit and our entire districts. And so here it is, I became the most powerful African-American in the state legislature. We didn't have any other, we, we didn't have a black lieutenant governor at that time. And so here it is, I'm the chair of the caucus. And so there was a lot of pressure because I had to work with everyone. And you're starting to make some, and you were starting to make some enemies because you were taking some unpopular positions. Absolutely. And, and so, and, and I, before we get to your 2016 story, um, you know, what was, what do you think was your most unpopular decision or, or decisions or backings that you were making in 2015 leading up to 2016? Uh, well, one of them was the, uh, the mayor of Detroit introduced uh, auto no fault. Uh, de-insurance and um, dumb idea and uh, I, I, you know everyone was looking for a solution some solutions worked some didn't and the mayor introduced the de-insurance and I didn't agree with it I didn't agree with it from the onset sitting at the Manugia mansion but I didn't just not agree with it I offered alternatives and I offered solutions and I offered amendments and I, I tried to work with the mayor as well as at the time his uh, uh, corporation counsel was Butch Hollowell at the time. And um, myself and my colleagues put together amendments and we spoke with all the stakeholders. We spoke with the hospital association. We spoke with trial lawyers like yourself. We spoke with the rehabilitative uh, provider, the brain injury association. We spoke with the home health care providers to find out what is needed to address all of the complex issues around auto no fault? And we gave a number of amendments and remedies and suggestions. Unfortunately, I believe a deal had already been cut between the mayor and the Republicans where our efforts were not accepted. Our offers were not accepted. And as a result, I opposed strongly the uh, de-insurance that was in its current state. As a result of me our entire caucus opposed. And then, and then, and then, and then let's fast forward to what happened to you. Well, hold on. After our Democratic caucus opposed, our entire Democratic caucus took a position to oppose. So there was no way for it to get out of the legislature with the entire House Democratic caucus opposing, which included the 10 reps from Detroit. And so at that point, conversations picked back up and I thought we were going to work together to come out with legislation that was going to provide savings but relief without taking away the protections that our current system had at the time. Uh, as a result, uh, we didn't get anywhere. And as a result, I stayed strong on, I didn't support the legislation. All right, let me take this story. It's my interview here, Brian. You're hijacking it. <laughs> and, and then, so you're, you're, you're thwarting our powerful mayor, and literally, you have an election coming up, in 2016 for your third term. Correct. Correct. And 
as this is happening and as you're being a thorn in their side, people are running against you. Correct. The, 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 there's rumors that people in your own party put people up against you. True? Correct. And one day you're home and you get a knock on the door by a couple of FBI agents. Correct. Take us through that story. So um, we're we're in June of 2016. Uh, the filing deadline had passed. I have um, some opponents that are running. One opponent actually lived down the street from me. And there's a backstory to all that with that opponent. But um, you do you believe the mayor put this person up against you? I, I listen, I don't I, I can't say what's been done. All I know is politics is a dirty game. OK. And, um, You're still I do a politician, know. apparently. But let's uh, <laughs> tell uh, Let's, uh, what, for, what, for, for sake of time, what happened? So the FBI. I get a knock on my door on Monday, uh, around June the 27th or 28th of 2016, that Monday. And it's about 9.15 in the morning. I'm not expecting anyone in, at my house until 10, which was my staff and volunteers to come campaign. I get a knock on the door uh, and it's two uh, individuals. I, they show me their badge. I let them into my house. They tell me that they're at my house to speak to me about some historical information. And I said historical as an old, and they said, yes. And so I set them at the dining room table and they said, um, you know, we want to talk to you about a loan. I said, I don't have a loan. They said, yeah, we know you don't have a loan. Uh, well, we want to talk about an old loan. I said, well, all my loans are paid that I've ever got. They're paid. And they said, yeah, we know it's paid, but there was a loan you got and the income didn't add up. And I said, what? I haven't had a loan in a couple of years and my loans have been paid off. But how about this? Give me your card and I'll get an attorney and have the attorney to come talk to you. So, you know, the gentleman that was there was a male and a female. He said, well, you're an attorney. I said, I have a law degree. But even if I was an attorney, every good attorney needs an attorney. And I'll get an attorney and we'll contact you. So let's fast forward, Brian. I don't want to go through every single detail. I want them to read your book to hear the details. Okay. You hired not the best attorney in town, in my personal private opinion. And uh, you, you, and and basically, um, it turns out that that your our Republican attorney general uh, was investigating you for 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 saying that you were earning too much money on a 2010 loan. Correct. And your 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 attorney basically convinced you to plead guilty to that. So uh, after going through the process, um, it, it, it was a long, drawn out process. Um, and after going through the process, offer was made to dismiss the felonies. But I would have to resign from office, and it was clear that they just wanted me out of the way. So. And it, so, it, I mean, by reading your book and talking, I knew you during this time. I mean, it, it, it clearly seemed political. Um, you have no evidence directly who did this, but you have people running against you. Um, a Republican. There's a lot of dots that we've connected. There, there's a lot of dots that we've connected. When you look at the attorney general who signed the, the warrant, his wife gave my opponent $2,900 six weeks before the charges were brought against me. What's the coincidence? And they don't live... They didn't live in my state rep district. There are a lot of dots that we connected. However, uh, fast forward, I ended up resigning from office and folks thought life was over for me, but I didn't because I didn't need a title to serve. I still remained active. I started a consultant company uh, and uh, God has blessed me with some phenomenal clients. 
Uh, we've done some great work together on a number of policy issues. But not only that, um, I've remained active and consistent in the community. I still you know, do community events. Uh, earlier this year, right before the pandemic, I did a voting event to educate people called Voting While Black. We had Dr. Cornell West present. We had uh, Ohio State Senator Nina Turner, who we see on MSNBC a lot. Uh, we had um, a number of representatives that represented Vice President Biden during his candidacy. And so um, I've remained out front on issues, outspoken, and, and a pillar in the community as relates to constituent services and addressing needs in the community. But I took the time to write a book. I, I, I know that. And, and But here's your book. Yes. Do you think you're going to run again for that third term? No, I won't run again for the third term, but um, political office is not out of my future. And so um, you want to make an announcement on open mic. What uh, could be in your future? Well, we're, we, we have right now a redistricting panel that's out there. It's going to draw the lines of districts uh, and we'll see what happens when those lines are drawn. Uh, we'll see what the opportunities present, but um, it's not out my future. Uh, and I look forward to serving uh, in, in some capacity, official elected capacity because I've never stopped serving. But, you know, it's because of individuals like yourself and others who were very supportive uh, of not just in your words, but in your deeds uh, and who believed in me and the work that I had done. And so uh, I want to say this, and it goes back to the book. But in 2016, when those charges were brought, I was in the toughest reelection of my life. But it was supposed to cause me to lose my reelection. But not only did I win my reelection, I won with more votes than I ever had gotten. But not only that, I raised more money than any other Democratic state representative that term. Wow. Because okay. people believed in the work I had done. Yeah, so, I remember. I think I was at a fundraiser for you. You were fighting the no fault. Um, you were fighting against the mayor. And and a Republican AG comes in and, and, and you know, they didn't think you were going to win. And correct. You won, and and that was that was an amazing feat. And unfortunately, less than a month later, you had to resign. Um, I think the citizens of Detroit lost out by 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 that by you having to do that. Um, but I'm I'm happy that you have lots of consulting clients, and you're working, and you're still in the community, and you're still fighting against no fault, and you're still helping people. And um, you wrote a book. I highly recommend it to everybody who wants to learn about Brian's life to, to pick this up on Amazon. We'll have, we'll have the, uh, um, where people could buy this in our show notes, but it was an interesting read. And, um, I appreciate, um, you know, I appreciate you writing this and I appreciate you, Brian. And, um, thank you for coming on open mic and I wish you only the best success. I look forward to seeing what you do next. Cause thank I you. know it's going to be something big and you got to get that license first, get that, Get that JD degree. Maybe you'll be a maybe you you'll fulfill that dream of being a judge one day. Uh, listen, I already got the JD degree. Just need the P number, and we're going to work and pray and believe that it's going to happen. Uh, but individuals and people can go to my website www.ithadthenumber2happen.com uh, and purchase your book. It had the number two happen.com. But I greatly and sincerely appreciate you uh, for your uh, support over the years. Uh, also, whenever I text and say, hey, I have a candidate that I'm working with, would you have a conversation with them? And look, my candidates have been winning. 
and so um, we need good uh, folks in office, regardless of what branch of government. But I appreciate you and all the things you do that the public know and all the things that you do that, that you never tell. And so I thank you and, and, and the residents in the city of Detroit, thank you. Uh, and I know that you have some extra stars in your crown for what you do for individuals that you never tell. Thanks, Brian. That means a lot, man. All right. Good talking to you today. And uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you so much. There you have it. Brian Banks, J.D., Hopefully he'll be getting his P number soon. Maybe you'll see him on a bench, a legal bench, a judicial bench in the near future. Brian really is uh, one of the great legislatures we've had here in Detroit. And uh, I wish him the best and thank him for coming on. If you know anybody who would like to watch this interview or hear it, please send it to him. Subscribe to Open Mic. Make some comments. Tell me who else you want to hear on this show because I will get them. I will bring them to you. This is fun. I love, I love talking to old friends and bringing on new people. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.